0: Welcome back to the South Harbor Church Podcast. South Harbor is a part of the Harbor Churches, which exist to help people find their way back to God. This week, Hannah Stevens brings us a message where Jesus himself asks the question, what do you want? As always, for more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, stick around after the message. And now, let's head over to Hannah.
1: Hannah Stevens, um, I know very few of you, <laughs> um, but I have been attending here for regularly for a little over a year, and I work at Western Theological Seminary. I work with congregations around the country um, to explore their neighborhoods and partner in their, with organizations in their neighborhood um, to be part of the local thriving of the neighborhood. And I am really grateful to be here with you today. This maybe sounds really like basic, but um, thank you for coming to be part of the gathered church to worship with me today. I don't take that for granted on a holiday weekend, um, and it's hard to get to church anyway, in my personal experience. It can be hard to get um, ourselves out the door and get here. So thank you for being here. Um, We're in Matthew, we've been in Matthew all year. Um, I've been really enjoying it. I hope you've been enjoying it, too. And we're in a micro-series within Matthew that we've called um, Questions Honest People Ask. I think I got that right. So Questions Honest People Ask, where it looks at story or questions that people ask of Jesus or are asked by Jesus. Um, And today we're going to look at two stories in which Jesus asks a pretty similar question to two different sets of people. Um, So we're in Matthew 20. If you have a Bible, want to turn with me. Matthew 20, starting in verse 20. Here is the first story. Hear these words from the book that we love. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it you want? He asked. "'She said, "'Grant that one of these two sons of mine "'may sit at your right and the other at your left "'in your kingdom.'" "'You don't know what you are asking,' Jesus said to them. "'Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink?' "'We can,' they answered. "'Jesus said to them, "'You will indeed drink from my cup, "'but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. "'These places belong to those "'for whom they have been prepared by my Father.'" When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life As ransom for many. Story number two. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet. But they shouted all the louder, Lord, Son of David, Have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called them. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately, they received their sight and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. So, those are our two stories. What's the question? What's the question that Jesus asks? What do you want? Or what do you want me to do for you? And this question, I would argue, can communicate different things depending on your tone. So imagine you're working really hard on something. um, You're concentrating. It's difficult. And then your five-year-old interrupts you for like the sixth time. And you turn and you say, what do you want? <laughs> that communicates something different than if you're having coffee with someone or sharing a meal with someone and you're really trying to understand what they're longing for. So scripture doesn't give us tone. But if we were to guess, what do you think Jesus' tone is in this question? We get a hint in the second story Because Matthew tells us Jesus had compassion. So the blind men give his their request, and Jesus has compassion on them. We don't get a clue like that in the first story, but we do have the absence of anger. So we know that Jesus is not afraid to say hard things to his disciples. Uh, Matthew 16, he calls Peter Satan, (laughs) tells him to get behind him. Uh, Matthew 17, he comes down from the mountain after the transfiguration and says, how long will I have to put up with you to his disciples? Jesus is not afraid to say hard things, and he doesn't do that here. So I think at the very least, we can assume Jesus has some sincerity behind this question, some desire to really create space for these two sets of people to name what they want. All right, let's talk about context. In the Gospel of Matthew, where does this story fall? What comes next? Anybody know Matthew 21? If you have a Bible, you can cheat. It's totally allowed. (laughs) Matthew 21 is the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. It's the day that we remember and we celebrate on Palm Sunday. And we know that this is the beginning of the end, of the last week of Jesus' life before the crucifixion. So that's where we're headed. This is the last stories before they go into Jerusalem. That's where we're going next. What comes right before our stories? Anybody know? Again, open book. It's totally fine. Just before our stories, we get this. Um, Matthew 20, 18. Jesus says this, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. Okay, so this is our is this, the... Uh, section of what Jesus says to them, and then we have these two requests, and then he's going to Jerusalem. And these together kind of bookend um, what I would call like the third section of Matthew. So if you were to divide Matthew up into four sections, you have a turning point at Matthew 16, which goes to our chapter here in chapter 20. And then we go into the final section of Matthew in 21, leading into the last days of Jesus' life. So, Matthew tells us the story of Jesus' ministry up to chapter 16. Um, He talks about years of, like, three years of ministry up to 16. And then he takes 16 to the end of his book to talk about the last few weeks. So it kind of slows down the pace. And there's a turning point in chapter 16, and it starts um, with this, a very similar prediction as what we just looked at. Jesus is going to give a similar prediction like this three times. They all happen from 16 to 20. And the first one is here in 1621. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Does anybody remember what happens in chapter 16 that prompts this? Uh, from then on Jesus started to? Pastor Tim talked about this back in July. And we were on, um, in Caesarea Philippi. So I want you to, this map has some interesting things on it, but I want you to notice just how far north Caesarea Philippi is. So Jesus takes the disciples all the way into the north, Caesarea Philippi, um, to a place in which idol worship is thriving, And he asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they give their answers. And then he says, who do you say that I am? And then there's this all-important moment where Peter says, you are the Messiah. And Jesus says, you're right. And you are Peter, and you are a rock. And on this rock, I'm going to build my church. And we have this beautiful imagery of Jesus there with his disciples in Caesarea Philippi, where all this idol worship is taking place, and he, he has this invitation to say, we need to build the church in the darkest places in the world. We need to bring the church to the gate of hell. This is what we're going to do in the world, to the places where people are hurting. This is where we're going to build the church. Oh, and by the way, don't tell anyone I'm the Messiah. But from then on, he explains, I'm going to have to die. So, Jesus... They're here, Caesarea Philippi. He turns towards Jerusalem. Can you see it? Star way down here. He turns physically towards Jerusalem. They start moving. From 16 to 20, they're on the move. He turns physically there, and he turns mentally and emotionally there. He knows what he has to do. It's like the disciples have now named him as the Messiah. He's like, that's right, and now I've got to go die. Now I need to go to Jerusalem. And he turns and they start moving. They start moving to Jerusalem. He starts, his, his teaching that he gives, it's almost like he's, he's trying to get his last words in. Like, I know I'm gonna leave you in a matter of weeks. So, hey, here's what you do when there's a disagreement among you. And here's how many times you need to forgive each other. And he tells them three times, and I'm gonna die, and I need you just to be prepared. That's what's going on for Jesus leading up to our stories. What is going on for the disciples? We like to think of the disciples as like this cohesive unit that, um, you know, they just follow Jesus and it's like always very peaceful and they get along. Um, But that's not the case. We've got individuals with different weaknesses and uh, different relational dynamics among them. And in this section, we actually get quite a few hints at some dynamics that are happening. So in, we've got chapter 16, um, where they've declared Jesus as Messiah. And then in chapter 18, they're discussing, so who's the greatest among us? It's like they, they're like, we, we picked the right one. We picked the Messiah. We're following him. Now we've got to figure out, like, who's the greatest among us? And in chapter 19, when the rich young ruler goes away sad after Jesus says, one thing you lack, give everything you have away to the poor. And he goes away sad because he has great wealth. Do you remember the disciples' response to that? They say, Jesus, we gave up many things to follow you. What is our reward going to be? And of course, he affirms, You will be rewarded for following me. And then we have this in 20, where the sons of Zebedee want to know, can I have a place of prominence in your kingdom? So at least part of what's happening for the disciples is they're trying to figure out, like, they're kind of jockeying for position. They're trying to figure out where they fit in this lineup um, of Jesus' followers. Like, Jesus is going to be king. They still don't fully get it, even though he keeps saying, I'm going to die, I'm going to suffer many things. And they're like, okay, what can I do um, to be in a position of prominence? Okay, so let's look at this first story. Um, Does anybody know who, who are the sons of Zebedee? John and James, that's right. James and John. Um, what do we know about James and John? Can you think of other stories of Scripture that we have of them? Um, one of my favorite things is that Mark, in Mark 3, calls them the sons, of, or Jesus calls them the sons of thunder. So that's my preferred name for, the, for James and John, sons of thunder. It's just so cool. Um, okay, so they're brothers. That We get that from this story. They were, by trade, fishermen. Um, they were also part of this intimate group that Jesus had within his disciples. So they get invited into some pretty important moments. They're with Peter on the mountain for the Transfiguration. It's just the three of them up there. And with Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane, they're invited to go on further with Jesus to pray. So they have a certain amount of intimacy, like this inner circle of Jesus' followers. And John, we know we have several books that we attribute to John in our New Testament scriptures. Um, John's Gospel, we have uh, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, we've got Revelation. And interestingly enough, in John's Gospel, I think four or five times, he refers to himself as the one that Jesus loved. He's clearly confident about his position with Jesus. Um, All right, what's our next question? (laughs) Okay, do they know what they're asking? Jesus' response to their request. And by the way, this is not a moment of James and John being like, Oh, Mom, you're so embarrassing. You're embarrassing us in front of the rabbi. They come with her to make this request. In Mark's gospel, the mom doesn't even make the request. It's just James and John. And Jesus really affirms that it's coming from them by responding to them. And his response is, you don't know what you're asking. You don't know what you're asking. So, do they? I know you're not going to disagree with Jesus. We're in church. Um, But think about it. What is the moment of Jesus' inauguration? When is he crowned? In this story. It's on the cross. Who is at his right and left? Thieves. Also being crucified. Do they know what they are asking? They're picturing one thing. They're pretty confident about this request they brought to Jesus. Jesus. Can you hear the compassion? Oh, you don't know what you're asking. That place, that's not going to be for you. And then he talks about the cup. We don't have time to go much into this, but he talks about the cup, which has a lot of references in the Old Testament of God's wrath um, or the consequences of the nation's sin. So you can look up these different places that talk about this cup of of taking on the wrath or the consequences of sin. And John actually has two references in uh, Revelation to the cup as well. And I wonder, years later, at the end of John's life as he's writing about the cup in Revelation, if he thinks back to this moment of his young response, oh, we can drink that cup. And of course, Jesus says, again, I think with compassion, you are going to drink that cup. That's right, you will. And we know from Acts 12, James is one of the first martyrs of the church. John lives a long life with lots of difficulty, including exile. Let's take a look at the second story. Okay. So we've got these two blind men. We're told that they're beggars. They're about to go up in Jerusalem, and they start calling out for Jesus. The crowd rebukes them or tells them to be quiet. (laughs) What do you think the crowd thinks they're going to ask for? What would they assume these beggars would ask for? Money, yeah. Money, clothing, food, shelter, mercy. That's their whole lives. Their whole lives is begging for the things that they need. And some of the people in the crowd maybe even knew them. Some of the people in the crowd have maybe seen them before. Jerusalem is not that big of a population. It's big of a population right now because everybody's coming for Passover. But there were likely people among the crowd that knew them and were like, hush, don't bother Jesus. Of course, they don't listen to that. And they yell out louder. And what do they call him? Son of David. This, has, this is not just a casual term to call somebody. They're acknowledging he is not just a man. He is not just a prophet. I will not be quiet. I want to get in front of him. It's got this, this idea of both the kingship of Jesus, the line of David, and as a title for the Messiah. They're acknowledging he has power. He, he is somebody that I want to see. And I believe can help me, and this this becomes all the more clear with the requests they make. They don't go for a surface level request. They go for the deeper need. They get before Jesus and they say, "I want to see." They don't ask for money. They don't ask for food. They will, they go for the thing they really need. Matthew actually tells us a very similar story in Matthew nine. Um, we get a story of two blind men who are healed. And there's just a couple differences between the two stories that kind of parallel each other. Um, so in Matthew 9, the two blind men come, and Jesus asks if they believe that he can do it, and they say that they do, and he heals them. So there the focus is on, G- on the belief of the blind men. Here the focus is on the compassion of Jesus. And there, Jesus, as he does in many places, throughout the Gospel of Matthew, tells them to be quiet. <laughs> don't tell anyone what I have done for you. But we don't get that in this story. In this story, Jesus um, does not hush them like we've been used to him doing all along. And it's because they're about to go to Jerusalem. He knows what's going, what's ahead for him in this next week. And at this point, everything is already in motion. The time has come. This is actually now the time where we're going to speak about what Jesus does. He doesn't tell them to be quiet. They follow him into the city. I want to tell you one more story. I am not someone who believes that I hear from God directly very frequently. Um, Hardly ever. I will get little nudges um, of feelings or ideas or questions that won't go away. And I've learned that these are often the Holy Spirit trying to get me to move, trying to nudge me to move. But every once in a while, God is more direct with me. I can point to two times in my life. And one of those times, this is the question that I heard. Hannah, what do you want It came in a season that I refer to as the year of death. Maybe, actually not maybe, I'm confident that many of you have had seasons like this where there was just loss after loss after loss, deaths of people that you love and other kinds of death, and it just seemed to keep piling on. For me, it began with the death of um, someone who had been a, like pastoral figure and leader and had really encouraged me when I was starting to explore ministry and going to seminary. And I had the privilege of being led by him and then having him be one of my volunteers when I was a pastor in that same ministry. And when he died, um, because of work obligations, I couldn't go to his funeral. And then at the same time, my co-pastor, left, and then the pastor of our church left, and I was already stretched really, really thin. Um, I was in seminary, I was working full-time at a church, and I had two young children. So once they left, it was kind of just like managing my failures. Like I knew I was going to let someone down every day. Um, so my goal was like, don't let the same person down too many times in a row. <laughs> just manage the failures. And um, And I was the pastor of a high school and post-high school ministry that was fairly large. There were 200-plus students and 80-plus volunteers. And there was a lot of pain in the room every week when we gathered. Um, And I would hear the stories of what these leaders and students were going through, the pain they were experiencing, the doubts they were having, and I was carrying all of that on me. And there was this one situation that I did not know what to do about, and it was tearing me up. There was a sophomore student, and she had shared with her life group leader, her small group leader, that she had learned to cope with her pain by harming herself. And as her leader was trained to do, she shared this information with me. And I reached out to the student and the parents, and we made a plan to try and help her learn some um, other coping mechanisms that didn't involve harming herself. And that went okay at first, and then she got really angry. She got really angry at her leaders, and the crux of her anger was that they had shared with me this information. And I reached out to her, and I tried to say, hey, be mad at me. I get it. You feel betrayed. You feel hurt. Be mad at me. I would not let your leaders be leaders if they don't tell me if a student is hurting themselves or somebody else. It's not their fault. They just love you. But she was pretty angry and pretty hurt. And so she stopped coming to our program, stopped connecting with her leaders, asked her leaders to stop reaching out to her. And her mom tried to drop her off sometimes, and she would not come into the student room. And I just felt like I'm trying so hard to make things better, and I'm just making them worse. And then my friend from college died. And her breath, or her death, it knocked the breath out of me. She was in her young 30s. And it's, maybe you've had this experience where you lose someone and you're so sad that you've lost them. But you're even more sad that the world's lost them. Like no one else will ever get to know her or be her friend, or experience what that's like. And on the Monday after her funeral, I was driving home from work. And I was doing something I call yell praying, where I just yell at God, because I was so sad and so angry. And as I'm yelling at God in my car, I hear this question, Hannah, what do you want? And I don't know why I said what I said. In retrospect, I think it was the thing that I thought was most impossible. Like it just couldn't happen. And I was bitter, and so I was just going to throw something back at God that God could not do. And so I said, I want, I said the name of the student, I want her to come to the program this week, and I want it to be fine. And then I backtracked. Then I said, okay, God, I'm so sorry. I know you're not going to do that. Like, that's just not a thing. Um, Don't worry about it. Until Sunday, when she came. And she walked in with a smile on her face, and she was holding a present. She was holding a present because it was December, and we were doing a white elephant gift exchange that night. And I don't know how she knew to come, I don't know how she knew to bring a present. She had not been in weeks. She walked right into the student room. And then we did this white elephant gift exchange. I was with the freshmen, so I was not in her room. And if you're not familiar with that, there were like 50 to 60 people. And, you know, you open a present and someone steals it. And you open a present and someone steals it. I had many gifts throughout the night. At the end, I'm like getting all the wrapping paper and throwing it away. And as I'm walking towards the door where the garbage is to throw away this wrapping paper, in walks this student. And you know she's in the wrong room. So I'm like, hey, what can I do for you? And she says, somehow, my gift got mixed up with the freshman class. And so I wanted to come down here and give a hug to the person who got my present. Great. I would love to help you find that person. Can you describe your present to me? And she said, Well, it's a roll of frozen duct tape with a stuffed Olaf. So I held up the present I had ended up with. And she smiled, and she gave me a hug. And later, when I was talking with her leaders, I said, hey, how was your small group time? And one of them looked at me, and she said, you know, it was fine. (laughs) You ever wonder if God has a sense of humor? So why do I tell you that story? It's a cool story, but that's not why I tell it. I tell you that story because before it happened, even though I was in seminary and I was teaching students about God every week, and I'd been a Christian for as long as I could remember, until it happened, I didn't really believe that God cared what I wanted. And I wasn't all that confident that God was involved in my world. Maybe you can relate. I also tell that story because I'm confident that there are lots of stories like it in this room. We have different details, different coincidences. Maybe we've explained them away, but we have moments that we encountered God in our lives. And I bet if we sat down and started to tell those stories, we would be amazed at what we heard. And I bet none of us could walk away from that and think God doesn't care what we want. God isn't involved in our world. I also tell this story because it's easy for us to look at the stories of scripture and um, forget that it's kind of a highlight reel or a low light reel. It's the highs and lows, We don't get the mundane. We kind of forget that these things take place within a life, within a full life that has um, the boring things and the big things and the sad things. These things take place within a life. Think of the two blind men, the two blind men. We don't hear anything about them before or after. I told you that my story took place in a season that I refer to as the year of death and it took place much closer to the beginning than the end. That same month, there would be three more deaths that will impact me significantly. The following month, my dad's brother will die, and I'll have a miscarriage. Three months after that, my friend's one-and-a-half-year-old will die, and I will come as close as I ever have to doubting the goodness of God. Four months after that, I'll lose my job. These moments that we have with God, they happen within a life. With all the messiness that comes with that. And all the mundane that comes with that. The day in and day out of taking care of kids and going to work and all of those things. Think about these two blind men. They get their sight and they follow Jesus. But to what? What's coming? They're following Jesus into the last week of his life. And we read in Matthew uh, 26, or yeah, 26. When Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, I'm not going to read this whole slide, but as he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's being arrested. We read, Then all the disciples deserted him and fled all. I don't know if the two blind men make it this far. But if they do, they desert him here. Which means that the two blind men go from being blind their whole life, being healed, following Jesus, deserting Jesus in a week. I'm not trying to be hard on them. I think it's what you and I do too. There's some point where we get to where we think this isn't Following Jesus is not it's not what I thought I was signing up for. This is harder than I thought. There's lots of invitations of our stories today, but I want to name three. The first invitation I think that we get from these stories is to ask. It's a pretty basic one, but it is to ask God for the things that we want. Because if you think about those two blind men, they had to be persistent. They were told to be quiet. (laughs) If they didn't keep calling out, what would have happened? Nothing. They would have gone on with their lives and not have been healed, I assume. I wonder how many other people when Jesus was on earth that he walked by that could have used healing that never asked. I think we are invited to ask for the things that we want. The second, um, oh, this is a quote I've been reflecting on a lot. Um, When I pray, coincidences happen, and when I don't, they don't. (laughs) I realize that we have these things that we ask for, and then they happen, and then we explain why they weren't really connected to the prayer that we prayed. (laughs) Uh, We have this tendency because, I don't know why, because we do. Here's the other invitation that I think we have. It's to trust in the goodness of God. I think there are times that we bring our prayers to God and we feel like God is saying no or God is not answering them. And I think about James and John and Jesus' response. You do not know what you are asking. I wonder if sometimes when we're praying and we're asking for things, we don't actually fully understand all of the ramifications of what we're asking. We're seeing the picture a little bit wrong. And it's actually in compassion that Jesus is saying, that is not going to be for you. I also wonder if James and John could have gone a little deeper. If maybe what they were asking for was a surface level request. And they could have, the, the desire behind it was this need to know that they were special to God. Need to know that they were precious to God. And if that's true, they're gonna get that in a matter of a week. They're gonna see just how valuable they are to God. So I wonder if we're feeling like God is saying no, maybe there is something deeper. Maybe we can go beyond the surface request to that deeper need, like the two blind men did. And I think our third invitation is to be bold. Both of these requests, James and John, the blind men, are bold. They are asking for something big, and they believe Jesus can deliver it. I will say my request was not bold. It was a little spiteful. I didn't believe God could do it. And if you notice in the story, God did so much more than I asked God to do. And I felt after, like, God was winking at me, saying, oh, Hannah, I can do so much more. And there's this book title that I love, and admittedly, I've never read the book, by J.B. Phillips, that says, your God is too small. South Harbor, friends, I wonder if our God is too small. Not in reality, just in our imagination. I wonder what it would be like if we became a little bit bolder. Okay. So I want to give you two tangible encouragements, and then I will close. Um, Number one, something you could do today, this week. Tell your stories. Tell the stories of what God has done in your life. Even the ones that you're like, I know it sounds like just kind of a coincidence, but it was kind of weird and it felt like God. Tell those stories. Find someone to tell that story to this week. Kids in the room, this is your job. Ask your parent or your grandparent or whoever brought you here to tell you their stories of God in their life. Second encouragement I would have for you is to sit with this question with God this week. What do you want Answer that question with God this week. I don't actually like sitting quietly in prayer. It's really hard for me. But I like to pray when I'm driving or when I'm on a run or when I'm walking. I like to move and pray. So whatever works for you, take five minutes this week and tell God what you want. And just see what happens. And if something cool happens, tell me about it. Please pray with me. Father God, you are a good, good father. I thank you for the invitation to just come and ask you for the things that we want. I pray that you would give us the boldness and the courage and the belief that you care, that you care about what we want and that you are active in our world. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: We hope that this week's message has brought you both some challenge and some blessing. For more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, find us on the web at www.southharbor.org or find us on Facebook and Instagram at South Harbor Church. And on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m., you can find our service streamed live on our Facebook page. And so from all of us here at South Harbor and the Harbor Churches, we want to wish you a blessed week.